the Christian Reformed Church and LGBTQ issues. This is episode 118 of Church and Maine. Hello and welcome to Church in Maine. This is the podcast at the intersection of faith and modern life. I am Dennis Sanders, your host, and I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. So over the last 20 years or so, um, most of the mainline Protestant denominations have pretty much ended their controversies on the role of LGBTQ uh, people in the life of the church. Um, the arguments usually go that there have they talk about the, this issue for many years, sometimes decades, and then maybe with again within the last twenty years or so, there is a a vote that takes place um, in favor of gay clergy or for allowing gay marriages. And usually, what happens is that um, conservatives in each of those denominations leave and they form their own denominations. Uh, the two latest that have happened, most recent. Um, in mainline Protestantism are the Reformed Church in America. Um, and earlier this year, conservatives uh, left to create the Alliance of Reformed Churches. And then United Methodist Church, which really hasn't had a vote, but um, just due to some certain circumstances that are unique to the United Methodist Church, uh, conservatives are basically leaving to create the Global Methodist Church. Now, it's easy to think that the more conservative and evangelical churches aren't dealing with LGBTQ issues at all. Of course, that's not true. Uh, the Presbyterian Church in America voted in 2021 to forbid uh, gay men from becoming ministers in the denomination. And the reason gay men is because only men can become ministers in, in that denomination. And that is even if... Uh, they are celibate. And that was the case with one uh, pastor um, in St. Louis that came out, but who is celibate. And um, the church decided they were going to make sure that no one else could become a minister. Uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church expelled First Covenant Church um, here where I live in Minneapolis uh, for, um, in 2019 because of its stance on LGBTQ people, they actually uh, married a couple. Uh, they expelled the pastor there as well. The interesting thing about the, the Covenant Church is that there are still a small number of Covenant Churches that are LGBTQ affirming. Now, the Christian Reformed Church has also been dealing with LGBTQ issues. They have been uh, actually talking about that for probably several decades. Um, and last, this past summer's synod shows that it's still not resolved. And in fact, it might be moving more into the conservative direction. So today I'm actually going to be talking with Paul Vanderclay, uh, who is a minister in the Christian Reformed Church, kind of about what's going on in the denomination, uh, and what it says about the larger culture, and really also about how church, how, how the church 
not just Christian Reformed Church, but the larger church, deals with fraught issues, such as LGBTQ issues. Now, as an aside, Vander Clay is a fascinating person to meet. Um, kind of in talking and in, in uh, reading and in watching some of his videos, I- I'm probably guessing that we don't totally agree on LGBTQ issues. Of course, I'm, I'm openly gay. I'm a minister. But he is someone that you want to talk to, you want to engage with. And I think if you engage with him, you're going to have a great discussion, even if you don't agree. Uh, he is someone that is really want, was willing to say things that make you think. And to me, that's an oddity in our time, in our era, where I think that there is so much certainty and really un- people not thinking at all on, on no matter what side you are on an issue. So, as I said earlier, Vander Clay is a pastor um, in the a Christian Reformed Church. He is the pastor of Living Stones Christian Reformed Church in Sacramento, California. He is a prolific YouTuber, and when I mean prolific, I truly mean prolific. He does videos that can go from a half hour to like three hour episodes. I mean, he that's that's prolific. Um, I do want to say up front that if you are uncomfortable with the discussion on LGBTQ people, that isn't an issue that isn't necessarily affirming. Um, this may not be the episode for you, and I'm just wanting to be honest about that. However, if you want to understand about how to really talk about this issue, especially with someone that you may not agree with, and how we can talk about this issue better, I hope that you'll listen in. So with that, here is Paul Vanderclay. Thank you so much for taking the time to to chat. I am really looking forward to this discussion. It's it's my pleasure to be here. So I think the first thing to um, I'd like to do is just kind of start off about your background. Um, you know, kind of I know that you're a pastor of a church in California. Kind of what is your what, what is your background, and especially your role probably in the larger Christian Reformed denomination. Okay. Um, I'm a, I'm a third generation Christian Reformed minister. The Christian Reformed Church is a church that split off from the Reformed Church of America, mostly with Dutch immigrants mm-hmm. in the 19th and 19th century before the First World War. And then in the 20th century after the First World War, those were two Dutch, two waves of Dutch immigration. My fa- my grandfather's churches were mostly in the Midwest and East Coast. And um, at that point, the Christian Reformed Church was almost homogeneously Dutch mm-hmm. and Dutch immigrant. Um, my father took a call to Patterson, New Jersey, and planted a church among African Americans in Patterson, New Jersey, and spent 36 years growing up there. And that oh. was that was where I grew up. Okay. And um, the Northside Chapel, as it was it was called. Um, was a became during the civil rights movement very much sort of a racial reconciliation church in Patterson. And 
it was there was a larger Dutch community in the Christian Reformed Church there. But my father's job was to transition what had sort of been a mission station to people, who, you know, mostly African Americans, who had sort of migrated up from the South. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that wonderful book, "Warmth of Other Suns," talks about. I, I read that when I came to California a number of years after I came to California, and thought I'm, I'm reading my story here because these are the these are the people of my father's church, and um, so the Christian Reformed Church had sort of a mission station. Um, in the areas of town they used to live in. And then they called my father to transform what had been sort of a mission station into a three self church. Okay. And so that was, those were the years of, of my growing up. And if, I was born in 63. And so of course, um, you know, there was the, you know, the civil rights movement and all of that. And so that was very much the, um, the, the ethos that I grew up in. Um, I, I went to Calvin College and eventually Calvin Seminary, and then I was a foreign missionary in the Dominican Republic for six years. And after that, I moved out here to Sacramento, California, and began pastoring a church that was in some ways similar to my father's church, in that this too had sort of been one of these small Christian Reformed racial reconciliation churches, but the um, the the neighborhood racial complexity and dynamics in Sacramento were very different from what they were in Patterson or in Grand Rapids, where I had spent 10 years. And so California was just sort of multi-everything. You had African-Americans, you had Hispanics, you had Asians and multiple Asian populations. And so the church that, that I came to pastor here was, was very ethnically diverse. And, um, and, and so when I also got here, we, I, I, teamed up with a, a guy who had been a classmate of mine at seminary who had planted a church out in a suburb. And so then we started a church planting effort. And so we planted a number of other churches in Sacramento. But my church remained unique in that it was, um, again, very diverse um, socioeconomically, racially, in terms of um, people's educations, and which was very comfortable for me because that was sort of the context I had grown up in. And so I was quite involved with church planting and through church planting, increasingly involved denominationally in missions in North America and church planting. And I'd done that for, for quite a while. Um, became very interested in the early 2000s, very interested in what Tim Keller was doing in New York City, mm-hmm. which in many ways was quite in alignment with growing up Um the the urban ministry wave that had happened in North American churches really sort of set up and kind of came to fruition in Tim Keller's ministry. And so I was, you know, very interested in Tim Keller's ministry and and worked through a lot of his stuff in kind of the the aughts. And then in um in 2017, um I ran across I ran across um Jordan Peterson and just missiologically found that really odd. I, (laughs) I had no idea what was going on with Jordan Peterson. And I tried to talk with colleagues about it, but most people were like, I'm not going to watch hours and hours of YouTube video. And so, um, (laughs) and I had, I had been playing around with YouTube a little bit with a member of my church and Freddie and Freddie had, Freddie had been on, he had been on a, uh, the radio with a shock jock 
in Sacramento on a rap station. And that had kind of wound its way around. And Freddie one day came to me and said, Pastor Paul, me and you should do a TV show. And I'm like, he was going down to public access to do his raps. And I thought, I'm not going to go on public access on Saturday morning. So I said, Freddie, why don't, why don't we, uh, I'll just take my smartphone and we'll make a little, we'll make a little variety show. I was thinking like of the Carol Burnett show and things. So I grew up watching. I said, we'll just have a little five, five, seven minute show. We'll call it the Freddie and Paul show. We put it on YouTube and there we have it. But then with the Jordan Peterson stuff, I noticed that this was primarily in a YouTube space. And so I decided I'd make a little video. Um, three reasons why this pastor thinks Jordan, Jordan Peterson is important. And then like the next day I had 300 subscribers after I'd had, you know, four people watching the Freddie and Paul show and what's going on with this. And, and it continued to grow. And then people began to contact me and they wanted to have conversations with me. And so that has developed over the last four years into a whole nother area. All along the way though, in terms of the Christian reformed church, I had, as I mentioned, I had always been involved in conversations about racial reconciliation um, anti-racism, these kinds of things, because I had very much grown up in that. And I then was listening to the developing conversation in the Christian Reformed Church about, um, back then it was, earlier on, it was civil unions, same-sex marriage, and of, um, gay and lesbian became gay and lesbian bi, gay and lesbian LGBTQ, and the, the alphabet kept growing. And the more I listened to the conversation, the more I thought, the, the the terms that people are using are changing in terms of, I, I began to hear new arguments. The Christian Reformed Church had been through a pretty bloody civil war over women in ordained ministry, which had ended in a compromise in 1995. And I had always been on the progressive end of that. My mother had been an elder before mm-hmm. they were allowed to be elders. And so that was all kind of part of the racial reconciliation wave. But, but I began to hear different theological notes in the, um, in, in the gender conversations, and I began to wonder about that. And that sort of drove me into asking deeper questions about Protestantism and conventionality. And that sort of, I'd always, I got my undergraduate degree in history, I'd always been interested in history, and so did more reading and study about the Protestant Reformation and how how those conversations had developed. And so then in the early, about 2012, I began, I I'd blogged for a while and been writing in various different venues. And I began telling, you know, suggesting that the Christian Reformed Church needs a much thoroughgoing, much more thoroughgoing confessional conversation about, not, not specifically necessarily about same-sex marriage, but about the ways that religion and Christianity and Protestantism continue to morph. Mm-hmm. And my my goal there wasn't necessarily to push one side or another, but basically to say to the denomination, we've got a lot to talk about. And one of the things that came through in the Christian Reformed Church was at one point, there were a group of people that wanted the Belhar Confession to become a fourth confessional standard in the Christian Reformed Church. And I watched the rollout of that conversation, and I thought, this, this is going to produce nothing but conflict. We're, we're not, 
Um, we're, we're not really setting ourselves up to talk about these issues in a much deeper, broader way that they really deserve. And if we don't do that, we're basically going to sort of parrot what the broader society is doing and how they're talking about things. Mm. And, and so as the Christian Reformed Church conversation about same-sex marriage then began to heat up in the teens, 2016 was, was an important year. And I've been noticing that in many ways, um, what's what, what had been happening in the Christian Reformed Church is that in many ways, the church had been getting more conservative, which surprised a lot of the people who were on the progressive end of the church. They didn't expect that. They were watching you, they were watching Netflix and, you know, the Supreme Court and politics and thinking, well, this is this is the way the country is going. Why doesn't the church keep step with the way the country is going? And I was saying, because churches work differently. And yeah, it also sounds like that's the wrong question to be asking. Yeah. And, and so then in in Synod, in, in 2016, 2016 had been when a report had come to Synod, once again asking for pastoral guidance of what to do with same-sex couples who were, you know, in certain areas of the country coming, or, or in Canada specifically, coming into the church, looking for pastoral guidance. And the church had had sort of a position that it had held since 1973, which had felt progressive in 1973, but um, didn't really... Most people who were, let's say, in a same-sex marriage did not find the 73 report to be actually helpful by the 21st century. And so part of the church wanted to continue this conversation, hoping that the church would continue to evolve in the direction that they saw evolve with respect to women in church office. and it became increasingly clear to me that, no, you're not reading the church right on this. And so in 2016, that synod decided to, instead of having a committee which would sort of look at the issues anew outside of necessarily the 1973 framework, they instead took a committee which was had ethnic diversity actually had um, diversity, had some uh, same-sex attracted individuals who were side B. And, um, and, but they, they restricted membership to that committee for people who basically affirmed the traditional stance of the Christian Reformed Church. And that surprised me because that was sort of a break in the pattern of the Christian Reformed Church. And a lot of people were angry about that. And by virtue of how they constructed the committee, the committee was designed to give another report which would be traditional in terms of these questions. And that report was supposed to come to Synod 2020, but then, of course, March 2020, COVID hits. Synod 2020 got canceled. Synod 2021 got canceled. And then everything came rolling into town, Synod 2022, with a really big agenda after not having synods for the two previous years. and a lot of the people who were hoping to defeat that report 
and sort of put into play the game plan that had that had brought women into ecclesiastical office in the Christian Reformed Church in the late 90s were completely blindsided by the fact that the Christian Reformed Church had continued to change in ways that they didn't like and didn't understand. And so then Synod basically adopted a resolution that said um, the writers of the Heidelberg Catechism would pretty much have regarded um, uh, same-sex sexuality as illicit, and that this is part of the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism, and um, this is now part of our doctrinal standard. And so what happened was that issue got elevated to now a part of the doctrinal standard of the church, whereas that had been a contended gray area before, which had allowed a degree of local liberty, not a lot, but a little bit. And um, and since then, obviously, part of my argument with the church has been the church has been changing in a lot of ways over the last 30 years that the establishment of the church that is mostly in Grand Rapids have failed to appreciate. I, I often tell people that churches leak left and break right. Um, churches for a long time have been buffers from broader community change. When Dutch immigrants came over to the Americas, those Dutch immigrants established churches and Christian schools in order to resist Americanization. That was the function of the church. We can't control the broader environment so we're going to start churches and schools that allow us to live in a little piece of the Netherlands that we took with us. And as the Netherlands continued to change, they would sort of instantiate the culture that they left in their little churches in America. Churches um, in many ways have, Lyle Shaler pointed this out in the 70s in some of those early church growth books, churches flourish when they are countercultural especially in America. And so what, what had been happening in the Christian Reformed Church is that many of the areas of the country where Christian Reformed churches had been flourishing in the 60s and 70s and 80s in some of the world-class cities like the New York, New Jersey area where I grew up, like the San Francisco Bay Area where I'm near now, like Los Angeles, like Chicago, the Christian Reformed communities have been dying in those areas. And partly because many people who were young and sort of leaning politically progressive stopped going to church. And so increasingly, churches were made up of people who had been, by and large, more conservative. And so the percentage of Christian Reformed churches that were, on the whole, culturally conservative had been rising, while others had been declining. And and then because there had been overall decline in the Christian Reformed Church over the last number of decades, like many denominations, the Christian Reformed Church began prioritizing ethnic diversity for growth. 
And so the church begins bringing in Hispanic evangelicals. 10% of the Christian Reformed Church is Korean, many of whom are immigrants. Almost all of these ethnic groups tend to be conservative theologically. And so the church is getting more and more conservative, even while it's getting more and more diverse. And so the the side of the Christian Reformed Church that had been progressive, beating the drum for racial reconciliation and racial diversity, they looked around and thought, we're clearly winning because the church is getting more diverse. But then when you had a vote about human sexuality, they're surprised because the non-white voices at Synod are almost all conservative. And, you know, having grown up and ministered in to the African-American community, I knew that so much of the sort of low-resolution uh, perception of Black America from white America is... is, is is really unnuanced and off. Mm-hmm. Having grown up in the communities that I did, I knew that the African American community, even though since you know since the 1960s, have been very reliable Democratic voters. African American community, in many ways, continues to be quite conservative. Yes, they're still very culturally conservative. That's right, and so many of the Many white people just completely don't understand how that community functions. And so then when the Christian Reformed Church, out of sort of because many of the third and fourth generation children of Dutch immigrants have much more assimilated into white university, upper echelon, progressive, urban culture in America have left the church agricultural area, suburban area, and then now other communities with a lot more ethnic diversity becoming greater and greater percentages of the church and more and more urban churches in the United States closing. Um, The only holdout being the Grand Rapids area, which is sort of the center of the denomination. Suddenly you have these urban white churches in Grand Rapids who had been the elite and the establishment of the denomination now finding themselves out of step with 75% of the denomination that they thought they were leading. Mm-hmm. And so what this means for the Christian Reformed Church is, is probably a fight that will once again decrease the size of the Christian Reformed Church and probably make it um, probably make it um, smaller and more rural and more ethnically diverse. Yet, and so in talking to many of my friends who, of course, for a long time looked at me and said, oh, Paul's a good guy. Paul's on the right side because he's always been there in terms of ethnic diversity and racial reconciliation and pastors, you know, one of these Christian Reformed Church that is very diverse um, ethnically. They just didn't understand when I would say, y'all need to find a new path into the future. And if you really want to pursue some sort of um, same-sex marriage affirming ministry posture, 
and if and if you don't want to simply be a carbon copy of the main line, you're probably going to have to do a lot of hard work confessionally and thinking through these issues to find a path forward. And right now, a lot of them are listening to me and saying that that's heresy. But I, because they own the institution and they, they've owned the institution for generations. And I say, you're not going to own it 20 years from now. So what is it though with, even I, I mean, I, and, and it being African-American, I know that, that, that sexuality is, you know, I think that there is some progress, but you can't pretend that that's, still not an issue. I mean, it still is an issue. And, and with a lot of, of communities of color, you're still going to find that. But it seems like wherever I hear, especially in the wider society, we just kind of assume, well, everyone thinks the same way. And I'm kind of like, <laughs> um, have you really talked to people? Because I, I don't think you have. I think you think you have. And it seems like that's the issue here is that people think that because the Christian Reformed Church has become more diverse, which is a great thing, that they will be of all one accord and therefore they don't have to reach out and talk or reason or anything. And to me that that seems really, well, it's short-sighted and well, it also seems a bit, I don't know, somewhat discriminating because you're just kind of assuming you're putting on to people what you think they are, but that, but you don't really know who they are. Yeah. (laughs) And, and that's, that's, you know, that's been an issue in. So, so again, back to my sort of my origin story, I, I grew up. So we lived in, a, we lived in a black community. We worshiped in a black community, but part of the Dutch Christian reform thing was Christian day schools. And so I went to the Christian reform day school, which was mostly Dutch. And then in the late sixties and seventies, my parents were part of an, of a group that was trying to give, you know, the, the children of churches like mine and other African-American churches that were in Patterson opportunity to, um, to send their kids to these Christian schools, which in some ways were better than the Patterson schools. Yet then suddenly you had to, you had to begin to deal with all of the difficult questions of culture and race that, that of course are there because Dutch immigrants are coming in with a different culture than Mm -hmm. You know, those who have moved up from the old Jim Crow South during the 20th century and were living in the, you know, multi-everything New York metropolitan area. And and so for me growing up, I, I had just always grown up with, a, I guess, an implicit understanding about culture that you've got to be really careful about your, it's easy to say careful about your prejudice, because when we hear prejudice, we think, you know, racial, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but we imagine that, and you can't help but do this because people are complex. When you begin a conversation with something, you begin with certain assumptions about that person. 
based on the few signals that you have. Mm-hmm. And at, at some point when it comes to many of these issues, which are enormously complex, um, you're just going to have to take some time and also listen, but then also have some understanding that people are also going to believe what they're going to believe. Mm-hmm. And if, if you want to have a productive relationship with them, you're going to have to one way or another, let them be them. And you, they might give you influence in their life. They might not. You might be able to have influence. All of that you only see over time. And it's probably the case that the influence that you have isn't, won't necessarily be as you imagine it. And again, as a pastor, you learn this. And people in the church will, you know, they'll be bothered by someone else in the church. And so then they'll say things like, well, pastor, you should, you should go over there and you should tell them what to do. And I'll be like, oh, okay. Do you think that really works well? Well, you're the pastor. And I'll say, well, (laughs) would you like me to tell you what to do? Well, I well, you don't really have to because yeah, I know because you're already doing everything right. I got it. <laughs> and, and so, you know, one of the things that you learn in ministry is that, generally speaking, with many people, it takes a light touch and a lot of patience mm-hmm. and a lot of listening. And people are going to change in one way or another. But my, as a pastor, my ability to make those changes in their life enormously limited. (laughs) So do you think that the discussion regarding human sexuality partially revolves, well, partially had to deal with the fact that there wasn't a lot of listening going on, that there was just a lot of assumptions that were playing in people's minds and not realizing, not I guess to use a, a common phrase these days, that they weren't reading the room. I think a big part of the problem is that we're reading the room through the screens that we have. Mm. And I think both sides have been doing that. For example, in the Christian Reformed Church, one of the things that I think a lot of people who were, you know, waving rainbow flags didn't understand was that there was and continues to be a certain number of people in the Christian Reformed Church who grew up in earlier generations who are same-sex attracted, that one reason, one way or another came to peace with the um, perspective on their sexuality that they had been taught. And when a group comes around and says, we're changing the rules now, there's not a little bit of anger from mm. that group that says, at a great amount of sacrifice, I accommodated myself to what I believed was the word of God and my perspective on this part of my life and have sacrificed for it. And now, after 20, 30 years of sacrifice, you're going to come around and tell me I was wrong? You might call that liberation. I call it offensive. In, in mm. other words, there are there's a lot of different experiences out there with people. And 
people don't usually put all of their cards on the table, but they do play a few. And especially when those cards are played with a degree of anger or sense of betrayal. So, and, and, and this is, this is while at the same time, there are individuals who said, Hey, I was, I was raised in the Christian reform church and I was taught that, that I, I should, I should, you know, I should look on this, this whole thing as a sin, but then I, I couldn't live that lifestyle and I went to another lifestyle and now I am married to someone of the same sex. And, and, and from this side of it, it does look like liberation. Mm-hmm. And so what many in the Christian Reformed Church, I think not dissimilar in some ways to a lot of the projection that they would do on African-Americans with respect to issues. Oh, I think I thought all African Americans were like, you know, the images they saw on TV. <laughs> um, I thought all African Americans were like the Huxtables, or like Good Times, or like, um, you know, The Wire. <laughs> you know, it's just like, oh boy. Um, I thought all gays. This was the narrative, and well. That is a narrative, mm-hmm. but, and, and I think it's also the case that, and, and this is harder for the conservative side to admit, that in many ways, the conflict has produced some good fruit in that at least now when I, especially now via my YouTube channel, when I talk to young pe- te- people in their teens and 20s who are same-sex attracted, they're not in the closet at all. And some of them are coming to different understandings about their sexuality and with respect to the Bible and all of this. And so at least in that generation, I see many in that generation is actually being capable of, of really having a good conversation. Hmm. And, and that is because of, you know, at least there's been some, there's less stigma, there's less fear and we can talk about it. But then I turn again to the progressive side in the denomination, and those people see that and say, oh, so then therefore we can do this. And it's like, so there was there was one elder from Neeland Avenue, which is one of the churches sort of at the center of this. And he went to synod with the idea, he's a wonderful guy, he's a Calvin College professor. He went to He went to synod with the idea that he would have good conversations with people around the lunch table and say, you know, basically let's tell stories about people who, you know, gay individuals who, who are now married and leaving, leaving, leading productive lives, et cetera, et cetera, that, that if he shared enough of these stories, then people would be like, Oh, Oh, okay. Then. And I said, no. And he was surprised because he said, no, that everyone has, through the media now, sort of been introduced to ideas about this, and they're still conservative. Mm-hmm. And telling them a story isn't necessarily going to change that. So, okay, so where does that leave the the churches that want to affirm in some sort of way? Where does that leave those churches? And my 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 admonition for those churches has been it's time for you to get creative now because you're trying to 
pick scripts up from previous church fight. You're trying to pick scripts up from, from major media sources and from corporate things. That isn't going to play in these spaces. And I don't know. I, I Again, I haven't had a lot of people liking what I'm saying, but I, I see that as a better way forward for them. So how do you see these churches kind of, because basically what it sounds like is that they have to kind of navigate an environment that really isn't what they expected and probably not necessarily in their favor. Um, but, you know, I, from, from what I've been hearing and, and reading in, in some of your um, YouTube and, and articles is, you know, the, I don't think that the, the thing here is um, necessarily to give up or to leave, but it seems to be, how do you work through this? And, and, and really, it sounds like there has to be a lot of listening and engaging on both sides of how to define some type of a, of a, a workable solution. Um, I guess I, I'm trying to figure out how does that, how, yeah. how do you envision that? I, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, I think, I, I think, the Christian Reformed Church is going to need to do some thinking about structures. Mm. I don't think that churches that so you've you've got churches that are simply not going to you know the church Neeland Avenue that ordained a deacon who is um, in a same sex marriage with her partner. I don't Neeland Avenue isn't going to back down on this. Mm -hmm. And the denomination isn't going to back down on this. And so within probably three or four years, Neeland Avenue and some of the other churches, maybe even a whole classes, is basically going to be put out of the denomination. That's what's going to happen. And when I say that, people are kind of back up like, no, that's what's going to happen. And now... You can sort of fight it the whole way, and then when it does happen, look at that locked door and say, how did this happen? Or you can begin to say, okay, well, we've got a pretty significant issue that we disagree on. Can we maintain some levels of community with each other? And... um and, and maybe find some ways of continuing to be at least related one way or another, especially with respect to institutions that we've all contributed to for generations now, and disagree on this, it's probably not going to be similar to what happened with women in church office. Because part of what happened with women in church office, that, 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 um, that happened in 1995, and so it's been 25 years since, 50% of Christian Reformed churches have no women in serving in ecclesiastical office. 75% of Christian Reformed churches have no women serving in the office of elder. And only 16% of Christian Reformed churches have women serving as clergy. And what happened with the way we dealt with that conflict was... The church found a political solution, which was a local option, and it got that discussion off of the table. 
But what that meant was when they were having the fight about women in church office, conservatives didn't want to talk. Progressives did. Now, after the political resolution, progressives don't want to talk about that, and conservatives do. In other words, they struck this political compromise and with the language of, well, let's try it in limited spaces and see what the Holy Spirit has to say. Okay, well, what do you mean by that? Well, let's, let's live into it and see if it's a blessing. But as a denomination, we've never wanted to have that conversation because, at least the progressive don't, because then they might hear something like, it's, it's, there are moments when it's complicated and they just want to hear celebration. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. the same thing will probably, would probably happen if we, um, if the Christian Reformed Church could strike a political compromise on this. But I also don't think this is exactly the same issue for a number of reasons. And so the Christian Reformed Church won't strike a political compromise on this because of the dynamics in the country and in the church. So my my challenge would be, see, the conservatives are going to win, but the problem the conservatives have is not dealing with this issue doesn't actually address any of the reasons the issue continues to arise. And so you still have to deal with it. And it might actually be helpful if you are in relationship with churches that are at least trying to deal with it in certain ways. You can learn from them. And you might not come to the same conclusions, but there still might be some things you can learn. And so, and so the challenge is to both navigate sort of the politics and the mm-hmm. structures while still having the conversation. And we haven't done that with respect to women in church ministry. In, in my opinion, these issues are very big issues that have links very deep in theology, in theological anthropology, and in many respects. And when you look over church history, you know, questions such as Christology and the Trinity took centuries for the church to sort of settle on some things. These issues we're dealing with now are not just issues of years. They're definitely issues of decades, and they're probably issues of centuries. And so that means that we need to keep talking because all of us and all of our little churches, we as individuals live in, you know, 80 to 100 years. Churches might live, you know, 50 to 500 years. Um, So in order to do this, we need to figure out how to talk about it better and how to have people speak their truth, say what their experience is, and not be threatened by listening to that experience. What is it that you think we don't want to, because it feels, again, that this doesn't, we don't know how to really discuss. Maybe argue is a little too hard, harsh of a word, but we don't know how to really discuss an issue. We, 
it sounds like we are going to present this and expect that the other side is just going to accept it. And, and so when the other side doesn't do that, then we all freak out or we start to accuse one another of being bad people. You know, like how do we do that without immediately putting, you know, impugning that the other side is, is, is rotten. Part of what's difficult about church and theology is that by definition, it's ultimate. Mm, yeah. And theological, theological debates, because we're dealing with the ultimate, have a tradition of using ultimate language. Um, you know, read doctrinal statements, such and such and such and such, let them be anathema. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's, you've got that. So then people are like, well, let's never use ultimate language. Well, that's not going to work either theologically. <laughs> no. And And so, you know, part of what happened in the Protestant Reformation was churches... Churches needed to learn how to stop killing each other over theology. And in many respects, we've learned that. So at, at least we're not killing each other now. <laughs> that's a good thing. That's, that's a good thing. So let's chalk that up. And, and, you know, as many noted with, you know, some of what's going on in terms of theological battles within Islam, people do kill each other over theology. Mm -hmm. So. At least we're not doing that, so that's good. Um, I think we have to we have to figure out how to deal with structures, because confessionalism was designed to limit the anathemas, and and so confessionalism basically said, "I'm going to put my cards on the table, and if you agree with me, we can work together." And there was, there was some limits in that, but I think when you look at, say, what's happened in, in, in the United States, by virtue of the fact that we didn't have a state church, um, we have sort of managed to, to be able to live together. Mm -hmm. Now, exactly how churches will work together is complex. And I think what we've seen in North America is churches, churches can work together. When I was, when I was growing up, my, the town that my, my mother is from and she lives in now, Whitesville, Massachusetts, um, in the Christian Reformed church, you know, probably the only thing worse than an atheist was a Catholic. <laughs> Um, that's no longer the case. <laughs> and, and they have the Christian Reformed church in Whitensville participates in Thanksgiving services, joint services with the Catholics. That's a huge thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but, but we also know that we, we've also seen spaces in which there are no theological 
distinctions worth recognizing in structure or practice. And that sort of sort of feels watered down because you maybe then in that place you can't say Jesus is Lord because you know the Jews are going to have questions with that and the Muslims are going to have questions with that and the atheists are going to have questions with that. So we we have to navigate um the the questions of the ultimate and the indifferent. And I think part of what we're working through is the Christian Reformed Church basically said, okay, women in church office is something indifferent. And a majority of the church could say, okay, I can live with it. Um, and there's still a, a group, a growing group in the Christian Reformed Church now, again, because it's getting more conservative, mm-hmm. that has questions about it. And actually, a woman that I helped bring into ministry um, just yesterday in a, in a meeting said to me, because when I laid some of this out, she's saying, well, I was just ordained last week. What does that mean for me? I said, well, these things move slowly. You'll probably be okay. Um, but we have to keep talking. We have to keep listening. And I think we're going to keep having to get creative with respect to structures. I think what we've seen from the United Methodists and the PCUSA is that fighting and you know making churches making churches repay for their facilities that they bought over the last 30 years, that's not a good idea. And so the Reformed Church of America, which is sort of breaking up over these issues right now, mm-hmm. at least it's not as awful as I've seen in the PCUSA or the United Methodist Church. So I think we're learning some things. But um, in the Christian Reformed Church, I know a lot of my a lot of my friends who are on the more progressive end are. Somebody said to me, "They're kind of it's kind of like the five um, stages, you know, five stages of of grief. Of grief. Yeah. Some of them are angry. Some of them are in denial. And and I want to say, oh, I understand, but you're probably this." In this structure, you're probably not going to have a place for very long. Why don't you focus on continuing to maintain whatever connections you can have with people that you disagree with? Continue to try to have good conversations with them, even if at the end of the conversation, both of you still are in kind of the same place. And then also have cooperation and collaboration in ways that you can still have, even with this difference. And, you know, right here in California, there are these efforts, like Ripon, California is a place where there's some Christian Reformed churches. There's Love Ripon, where the Christian Reformed Church and the Baptist and the Methodist and the Catholics all get together to do something for the poor in their neighborhood. And I imagine the mainline, if there is a mainline church in Ripon, I don't know, the mainline get in on that too. So. I think we're going to have to do all three things moving forward. Hmm. You said something earlier about how the progressives, especially kind of pick up things from the wider society when it comes to sexuality and that because they see what's happening in the wider society, what must be happening here. Is something like similar happening with conservatives or or how are they picking up stuff from the wider society and, and bringing oh, that in? Oh, very much so. And, and part of the, you know, there's bitter pills for both sides in this. 
and I often note to conservatives, they change too in these, even though their predominant language tends to be try to anchor it in the past. You know, for example, mm-hmm. in the women in church office wars in the Christian Reformed Church that went from the 70s to the 90s, churches that beforehand would have absolutely no problem with a woman leading music or a woman teaching Sunday school suddenly had all kinds of conscience issues about women teaching boys who were entering puberty because all of their ideas sort of were reframed. And, you know, one of the things, one of the things that I think churches have, especially conservative churches, have not paid enough attention to is that the truth is that heresy and orthodoxy co-create. You sort of discover them both at the same time. And conflicts tend to do this. And so, in other words, before Nicaea, um, Christology and ideas about the Trinity were probably a very messy, mixed-up thing in the church. And and it wasn't until at some point you sort of had a category that you knew you were for or against something. And, and so conservatives are also on their own journeys. And, and, and what's funny, now that I'm in my 50s and having been in the Christian Reformed Church all my life and having been a third-generation minister, I see that conservatives are both similar and dissimilar to the conservatives 50 years ago. They pay attention to different issues. They have different sensitivities. And that that's a truth in this too, that the truth is we're all changing as we go. And, and everybody along the way wants to be more faithful, have a better handle on the truth, and have their communities be more in line with what they believe Jesus wants, at least within a Christian frame. And, you know, I remember, I remember in college, um, the Bible college that my sister went to, a conservative Reformed Bible college, um, there was a, a woman a missionary who gave the commencement address. And at that point, I was four women in office, and my grandmother was against it. And, you know, as a, you know, as a bratty, you know, early 20 something, I had to point that out to my grandmother to make points about an issue that divided us. And, um, you know, I look back on that now and I think I was a, I was a bratty early 20 something that was full of himself and thought he knew the world. But at the same time in, in the Christian reformed church, one of the hallowed saints of the denomination is a woman named Joanna Veenstra who was the first Christian Reformed um, person to go to Nigeria. And and she planted and started a church that is larger than the Christian Reformed Church in North America. And it was a woman that did this. And, you know, and there was sort of this weird double standard back then that, well, I guess, you know, she basically went because no man wanted to. And it's probably also the case that perhaps going to Africa, being a woman, the dynamics would be different in terms of the people that she was relating to there. And, you know, 
often part of the problem with Christianity is that when we lead with kind of power over overt power, we're very, we, we don't have much influence, but when we lead with weakness, you know, the power structures in the, in the people that we enter into suddenly welcome you in because you're weak and you're not a threat. So these these issues, there's just enormous complexity with all of this stuff. And I, I think we should be patient with one another and, you know, be quick to listen and um, slow to speak. And, and maybe, just maybe, if we do these things, we will grow in wisdom. Why do you think we're not quick to listen? See, um, Jordan Peterson has has this. So he kind of came on the stage as not a church growing going man, watching uh, the new atheists sort of, you know, have their way on the public stage, and then watching Christians kind of behave badly against the new atheists. And and he said, he said, you know, we have theological, ideological, symbolic systems that make up our world and give us a sense of meaning in the world. If you kick people in their axioms, they hurt and they don't tend to respond in a productive way. You know, and, you know, your mama wears army boots. Well, my mama's pretty important to me. If I, if you had a good mama... You know, why are you going to talk about my, don't talk about my mama that way. She's my mama. I'm going to defend my mama. So we're reactive. We're insecure. We're fragile. We're short-lived. Um, you know, and, and I, I even look at the way the, the Protestant Reformation got going with Luther. Um, you know, when, when you first look at Luther with his 95 theses, he prints them and he 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 posts them in Latin on a door, which basically invites an academic conversation between him and his colleagues, students, copy it down, translate it into German, get it to the printing press, which was the internet of their day, put out leaflets and spread them around. Now the Catholic Church has a problem. You know, the, mm-hmm. many of the issues that Luther had been debating were common intellectual debate points in universities and amongst the, um, you know, the, the learned elite. But that some of that, you know, it touched a nerve, the anti-clericalism, the tensions between the Holy Roman Empire and Italy and France. And, you know, we, we never, we never th- keep in mind that 1492 globalism gets started Martin Luther was you know basically of that first generation living in a global world and the printing press comes on and so then Luther wants to start a theological conversation and then the Roman Catholic Church having watched Jan Hus having seen what happened with Wycliffe wades in and says we got to put out this fire and then they start poking at Luther, and Luther's just got the wrong personality. He starts poking back, and you know we've all watched we've all watched little things in church escalate into nightmares. And mm-hmm. well, 
if there's enough if there's enough tinder around, the woods of California will burn like you can't believe. Hmm. So I think you probably discussed a little bit about the future, but you know, where do you see this discussion on human sexuality headed in the next few years? I know within within the RCA, and you've talked about that, that there's been a splinter group that has formed. Um, and so that's kind of been happening there. But do you see something similar happening within the, the Christian Reformed Church that there would be a, but maybe backwards and that it would be a progressive group instead of a conservative group? That, that could happen. It could happen that progressive CRCs will join the RCA and conservative RCAs will join the CRC. Uh-huh. The CRC and the RCA have sort of worked that way in the past. Mm-hmm. Before the Christian Reformed Church allowed women in office, Women who went to seminary got ordained in the RCA. And so the CRC and the RCA have always sort of had that kind of relationship. Something like that might happen. I I think actually, and this is going to sound weird, if you sort of pull back denominations and confessionalism are sort of doing their jobs. If you're, if you're same sex attracted and you went through this path and you decided that marriage is the best way forward for you, there are, there are churches you can find that will welcome you in America today. And I don't think that's a bad thing. If you are same-sex attracted and you believe in, you read the scriptures and you're convicted of a more traditional sexuality and you your side B and you think celibacy is the way to go, there are churches you can find that will support you on that path too. Probably a little harder to find, but they're out there. Um, what denominationalism for all of its um, schismatic aspects affords the church a chance to practice diversity over the long haul so that we can kind of get an assessment of of how these very foundational issues play out in the world. You know, it's one thing, I'll speak from a, a heterosexual perspective, it's one thing when I was 20 years old or 22 years old thinking about what it what life would be like as a married man to a woman thinking about what that would be I had sisters I had a mother my family was intact I pretty much assumed marriage was going to be what my parents marriage was it isn't <laughs> and so you can you can think all you want about how this is going to go but there's there's no substitute for living it. And what's happening in the church in North America is that we're divided on this issue and people are asking the question, is the, is, you know, what has been for at least the last 1500 years, the, the traditional approach to human sexuality essential for Christian communities or not? We are having that experiment right now. So in some ways, denominationalism and confessionalism is working. I think um, 
I, you know, and I would, I've, I've been admonishing at least the, the churches that are on the progressive end of the Christian Reformed Church to consider being more self-conscious theologically in this um, as they go forward. But, you know, that, that's a lot of work. And it's not easy work. And, you know, part of what's, part of the advantage of sort of the, a monogamous position is it's sort of simple until it isn't, <laughs> you know, divorce, you know, as it, it's something we we often don't remember. Divorce continues to be a very difficult issue within the church. Roman Catholic church has their perspective, orthodoxy. There's a diversity of approaches in the Protestant world. Well, that's kind of the advantage of the Protestant world. The Protestant world is sort of the experimental wing of the church. And we're experimenting. <laughs> yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, well, it, it's just an interesting that, yeah, it makes it, I never kind of thought of Protestantism as the R&D part of the church, but in some ways we are. Yeah. Well, this is probably not the end of this conversation <laughs> between you and I, but um, but I do need to stop it here. But so thank you. This has been, I think it's been helpful to understand what's going on in the CRC, but I think also what's going on in the wider culture and how we can, can learn to kind of really appreciate each other. And, and also I think just a reminder of never to assume what other people believe because you don't know and that we need to, to listen to each other's stories, not necessarily to change minds, but to understand where someone's coming from and, and, and how to, to live together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've been a very gracious listener. I've, like I've, I've probably talked way too much and I haven't, <laughs> haven't gotten, I'll, I should, I, I, maybe, maybe you'll do me the favor and I'll, I'll have you on my channel and um, I, and that, I, cause, cause I'd love to hear your story. That would be very cool. I would love to tell that story. So I, you, let's just say you have, I, I am willing to, I uh, invite myself to onto your uh YouTube channel sometime soon. That sounds wonderful. All I really right. appreciate it, Dennis. You're welcome. Take care. All right. that you enjoyed that episode um this is i kind of feel like this is a part one of, of an episode um we talked for a good long time but i feel like this discussion isn't over and that's not a that's that's not a bad thing i think that as i said he was engaging i enjoyed talking to him and i want to discuss more again so um see this is part one um as I uh, wanted to let you know, I said, uh, I've been saying for the last few episodes, 
my old podcast host Sounder has closed is closing up shop, so I have moved everything over to Substack. Um, if you have already subscribed to the subs, uh, this podcast, you don't have to do anything; just keep listening. If you want to check out my uh, page on Substack, I've included articles there as well. Uh, that is Church in Maine, all one word. Dot sub, substack. Dot com. Um, <coughs> excuse me. And um, I'm still kind of trying to figure out uh, if I'm going to put things behind a paywall or not, what, when that happens. But for now, it, things are free and ev- all these episodes will, will be free. They always will remain free. But I just wanted to let you know about that. Um, the website where you can donate is still up for the time being. That will probably be going away, but probably not for another month or so. But you can go to churchandmain.org, all one word. Um, to listen to episodes and also to um, um, donate if you would like. Um, If you have, please consider leaving a review of um, this helps other people find this um, here podcast. And um, if you can leave her a good review and uh, uh, that would be so helpful for me. So that is it for this episode of Church in Maine. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Again, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I hope that you have a blessed Advent. Uh, You will be, there will be more episodes coming in the near future. So thanks again for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and we will see you very soon.